Chicago's Awful Theatre Horror by the Survivors and Rescuers Copyright 1904 Chapter 1 The Story of the Fire This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. No Disaster by Flood, Volcano, Wreck, or Convulsion of Nature has in recent times aroused such horror as swept over the civilized world when on December 30, 1903, a death-dealing blast of flame hurtled through the packed auditorium of the Iroquois Theater in Chicago, causing the loss of nearly 600 lives of men, women, and children, and injuries to unknown scores. Strong words pale and appear meaningless when used in describing the full enormity of this disaster, which has no recent parallel except in the outbreaks of nature's irresistible forces. There have been greater losses of life by volcanoes, earthquakes, and floods, but no fire horror of modern times has equaled this one, which in a brief half-hour turned a beautiful million-dollar theater into an oven piled high with corpses, some burned and mutilated, and others almost unmarked in death. Coming as it did in the midst of a holiday season, when the second greatest city in the United States was reveling in the gaiety of Christmas week, this sudden transformation of a playhouse filled with a pleasure-seeking throng into an inferno filled with shrieking, living, and mutilated dead came as a thunderbolt from a clear sky. It was a typical holiday matinee crowd, composed mostly of women and children, with here and there a few men. The production was the gorgeous scenic extravaganza Mr. Bluebird, with which the handsome new theatre had been opened not a month before. Don't fail to have the children see Mr. Bluebird, was the advertisement spread broadcast throughout the city, and the children were there in force when the scorching sheet of flame leaped from the stage into the balcony and gallery where a thousand were packed. The building had been heralded abroad as a fireproof structure, with more than enough exits. Ushers and five men in city uniform were in the aisles. All was apparently safety, mirth, and good cheer. Then came the transformation scene. The auditorium and the stage were darkened for the popular song The Pale Moonlight, Eight dashing chorus girls and eight stalwart men in showy costume strolled through the measures of the piece, bathed in a flood of dazzling light. Up in the scenes a stage electrician was directing the spotlight which threw the pale moonlight effect on the stage. Suddenly there was a startled cry. Far overhead, where the spot was shooting forth its brilliant ray of concentrated light, a tiny serpentine tongue of flame crept over the inside of the proscenium drape. It was an insignificant thing, yet the horrible possibilities it entailed flashed over all in an instant. A spark from the light had communicated to the rough edge of the heavy cloth drape. Like a flash it stole across the proscenium and high up into the gridiron above. Accustomed as they were to insignificant fire scares and trying ordeals that are seldom the lot of those who lead a less strenuous life, the people of the stage hurried silently to the task of stamping out the blaze. In the orchestra pit it could be readily be seen that something was radically wrong, but the trained musicians, 
played on. Members of the octet cast their eyes above and saw the tiny tongue of flame growing into a whirling maelstrom of fire. But it was a sight they had seen before. Surely something would happen to extinguish it. America's newest and most modern fireproof playhouse was not going to disappear before an insignificant fire in the rigging loft. So they continued to sway in sinuous steps to the rhythm of the throbbing orchestra. Their presence stilled the nervousness of the vast audience, which knew that something was wrong, but had no means of realizing what that something was. So the gorgeously attired men and dashing voluptuous young women danced on. The throng feasted its eyes on the moving scene of life and color, little knowing that for them it was the last dance, the dance of death. That dance was not the only one in progress. Far above the element of death danced from curtain to curtain. The fire-fiend, red and glowing with exultation, snapping and crackling in anticipation of the feast before it, grew beyond all bounds. Glowing members and blazing sparks, crumbs from its table, began to shower upon the merry dancers, and they fell back with blanched faces and trembling limbs. The star, Eddie Foy, rushed to the front of the stage to reassure spectators who now realized the peril at hand and rose in their seats struggling against the impulse to fly. Others joined the comedian in his plea for calmness. Suddenly their voices were drowned in a volley of sounds like the booming of great guns. The manila lines by which the carloads of scenery in the loft above was suspended gave way before the fire like so much paper, and the great wood battens fell like thunderbolts upon the now deserted stage. Still the audience stood, terror-bound. Lower the fire curtain, came a hoarse cry, and the fire curtain shot down over the proscenium, but stopped before the great opening was closed, leaving a yawning space of many feet beneath. With the dropping of the curtain, a door in the rear had been opened by the performers fleeing for their lives and battling to escape from the devouring element fast hemming them in on every side. The draft thus caused transformed the stage in one second from a dark, gloomy smoke, and the fire curtain shot down over the proscenium, but stopped before the great opening was closed, leaving a yawning space of many feet beneath. With the dropping of the curtain, a door in the rear had been opened by the performers, fleeing for their lives and battling to escape from the devouring element fast hemming them in on every side. The draft thus caused transformed the stage in one second from a dark, gloomy, smoke-concealed scene of chaos into a seething volcano. With a great puff, the mass of flame swept out over the auditorium, a withering blast of death. Before it, the vast throng broke and fled. Doors, windows, hallways, fire escapes, all were jammed in a moment with struggling humanity, fighting for life. Some of the doors were jammed almost instantly so that no human power could make egress possible. Behind those in front pushed the frenzied mass of humanity, Chicago's elect, the wives and children of its most prosperous businessmen and the flower of local society, fighting like demons incarnate. Purses, wraps, costly furs were cast aside in that mad rush. Mothers were torn from their children, husbands from their wives. 
no hold however strong could last against that awful indescribable crush strong men who sought to the last to sustain their feminine companions were swept away like straws thrown to the floor and trampled into unconsciousness in the twinkling of an eye women to whom the safety of their children was more than their own lives had their little ones torn from them and buried under the mighty sweep of humanity moving onward by intuition rather than by exercise of thought to the various exits they in turn were swept on before their wails died on their lips some to safety others to an unspeakably horrible death while some exits were jammed by fallen refugees so as to become useless others refused to open in the darkness that fell upon the doomed theatre a struggle ensued such as was never pictured in the mind of dante in his visions of inferno with prayers curses and meaningless shrieks of terror all faced their fate like rats in a trap the darkness was illumined by a fearful light that burst from the sea of flame pouring out from the proscenium making doré's representations of inferno shrink into the commonplace like a horizontal volcano the furnace on the stage belched forth its blast of fire, smoke, and withering, blighting heat. Like a wave it rolled over every portion of the vast house, dancing. Dancing, yes, pillars of flame danced, to the multitude swept into eternity before the hurricane of flame and the few who were dragged out hideously disfigured and burned almost beyond semblance of human beings. It seemed indeed a dance of death withering crushing consuming all in its path forced on as though by the power of some mighty blowpipe impelled by the fearful draughts that directed the fiery furnace outward into the auditorium instead of upward into the great flues constructed to meet just such an emergency the sea of fire burned itself out there was little or nothing in the construction of the building itself for it to feed upon and it fell back of its own weight to the stage where it roared and raged like some angry demon and those great flues that supposedly gave the palatial iroquois increased safety barred and grated battened down with heavy timbers they resisted the terrible force of the blast itself there they remained intact the next day anxiety to throw open the palace of pleasure to the public before the builders had time to complete in detail their Herculean task, had resulted in converting it into a veritable slaughter-pen. Mr. Bluebeard's Chamber of Horrors, lightly depicted in satire to settings of gold and color, wit and music, had evolved within a few minutes into an actuality. Chamber of Horrors indeed, grim, silent, smoldering, and sending upon high the fearful odor of burning flesh. Policemen and firemen, hardened to terrible sights, crept into the smouldering sepulchre only to turn back, sickened by the sight that met their eyes. Tears and groans fell from them, and they were unnerved as they gazed upon the scene of carnage. Some gave way and were themselves the subject of deep concern. It was a scene to wring tears from the very stones. No words can adequately describe it. Perhaps the best description of that quarter-hour of carnage and the sense of horror when the seared, scorching sepulchre was entered for the removal of the dead and dying, is found in the words of the veteran descriptive writer, Mr. Ben H. Atwell, 
who was present from the beginning to the end of the Holocaust, and after visiting the deadly spot in the grey dawn of the following day, wrote his impressions as follows. Where at 3.15 yesterday beauty and fashion and the happy amusement seeker thronged the palatial playhouse, to fall a few moments later before a deadly blast of smoke and flame sweeping over all with irresistible force, the dawn of the last day of the passing year found confusion, chaos, and an all-pervading sense of the awful. It seemed to radiate the chilling, depressing volume from the streaked, grime-covered walls and the flame-licked ceilings overhead. Against this fearful background, the few grim policemen and firemen, moving silently about the ruins, searching for overlooked dead or abandoned property, loomed up like fearful ghosts. The progress of their noiseless and ghastly quest proved one circumstance survivors are too unsettled to realize. With the opening of the stage door to permit the escape of the members of the Mr. Bluebird Company and the breaking of the skylight above the flue-like scene loft that tops the stage, the latter was converted into a furnace through which a tremendous draft poured like a blowpipe driving billows of flame into the faces of the terrified audience, with exits above the parquet floor simply choked up with the crushed bodies of struggling victims who made the first rush for safety. The packed hundreds in balcony and gallery faced fire that moved them up in waves. With a swirl that sounded death, the thin bright sheet of fire rolled on from stage to rear wall, it fed on the rich box curtain, seized upon the sparse veneer of subdued red and green decorations spread upon wall, ceiling, and balcony facings. It licked the fireproof materials below clean and rolled on with a roar. Over seat tops and plush rail cushions it sped. Then it snuffed out, having practically nothing to feed upon save the tangled mass of wood scene frames battens and paint-soaked canvas on stage. There firemen were directing streams of water that poured over the premises in great cascades in volume, aggregating many tons. A few streams were directed about the body of the house, where vagrant tongues of fire still found material on which to feed. Silence reigned, the silence of death, but none realized the appalling story behind the awful calm. The stampede that followed the first alarm, a struggle in which most contestants were women and children, fighting with the desperation of death, terminated with the sudden sweep of the sea of flames across the body of the house. The awful battle ended before the irresistible hand of death, which fell upon contestants and those behind alike. Somehow those on the main floor managed to force their way out. Above where the presence of narrower exits, stairways that precipitated the masses of humanity upon each other, and the natural air current for the billows of flame to follow, spelled death to the occupants of the two balconies. The wave of flame, smoke, and gas smote the multitude. Dropping where they stood, most of the victims were consumed beyond recognition. Some who were protected from contact with the flames by masses of humanity piled upon them, escaped death, and were dragged out later by rescuers, suffering all manner of injury. 
The majority, however, who beheld the indescribably terrifying spectacle of the wave of death moving upon them through the air, died then and there without a moment for preparation. Few survived to tell the tale. The blood-curdling cry of mingled prayers and curses, of pleas for help, and meaningless shrieks of despair, died away before the roar of the fire, and the silence fell that greeted the firemen upon their entry. Survivors describe the situation as a parallel of the condition at Martinique, when a wave of gas and fire rolled down the mountainside and destroyed everything in its path. Here, however, one circumstance was reversed, for the wave of death leaped from below and smote its victims, springing from the very air beneath them. In a few minutes it was all over, all but the weeping. In those few minutes obscure people had evolved into heroes. Staid businessmen drove out patrons to convert their stores into temporary hospitals and morgues. Others converted their trucks and delivery wagons into improvised ambulances. Stocks of drugs, oils, and blankets were showered upon the police to aid in relief work, and a corps of physicians and surgeons sufficient to the needs of an army had organized. Rescues little short of miraculous were accomplished, and life and limb were risked by public servants and citizens with no thought of personal consequences. Public sympathy was thoroughly aroused long before the extent of the horror was known, and before the sickening report spread through the city that the greatest holocaust ever known in the history of theatricals had fallen upon Chicago. While the streets began to crowd for blocks around with weeping and heartbroken persons in mortal terror because of knowledge that loved ones had attended the performance, patrol wagons, ambulances, and open wagons hurried the injured to hospitals. Before long they were called upon to perform the more gruesome task of removing the dead. In wagon-loads the latter were carted away. Undertaking establishments both north, south, and west of the river threw open their doors. Piled in windows in the angle of the stairway, where the second balcony refugees were brought face to face, and in a death struggle with the occupants of the first balcony, the dead covered a space fifteen or twenty feet square, and nearly seven feet in depth. All were absolutely safe from the fire itself when they met death, having emerged from the theatre proper into the separate building containing the foyer. In this great court there was absolutely nothing to burn, and the doors were only a few feet away. There the ghastly pile lay, a mute monument to the powers of terror. Above and about towered shimmering columns and facades in polished marble, whose cold and unharmed surfaces seemed to bespeak contempt for human folly. In that portion of the Iroquois structure the only physical evidences of damages were a few windows broken during the excitement. To that pile of dead is attributed the great loss of life within. The bodies choked up the entrance, barring the egress of those behind. Neither age nor youth, sex, quality, or condition were sacred in the awful battle in the doorway. The gray and aged, rich, poor, young, and those obviously invalids in life lay in a tangled mass, all on an awful footing of equality, in silent annihilation. Within and above, 
equal terrors were encountered in what at first seemed countless victims. Lights, patience, and hard work brought about some semblance of system, and at last word was given that the last body had been removed from the charnel house. A large police detail surrounded the place all night, and with the break of day search of the premises was renewed none being admitted save by presentation of a written order from chief of police o'neill fire engines pumped away removing the lake of water that flooded the basement to the depth of ten feet as the flood was lowered it began to be apparent that the basement was free of dead searchers gazing down from the heights of the upper balcony surveyed the scene of death below with horror stamped upon their faces fire had left its terrifying blight in a colorless, garish monotony that suggests the burnt-out crater of an extinct volcano. In the wreckage, the scattered garments and purses, fragments of charred bodies, and other debris strewn within thousands of bits of brilliantly colored glass lay as they fell shattered in the fight against the flames. A few skulls were seen. Five bushel baskets were filled with women's purses gathered by the police. A huge pile of garments was removed to a nearby saloon where an officer guards them, pending removal to some more appropriate place. The shoes and overshoes picked up among the seats filled two barrels to overflowing. The fire manifested itself in the flies above the stage during the second act. The double octet was singing in the pale moonlight when the tragedy swept mirth and music aside to give way to a more somber and frightful performance. Confusion on the stage, panic in the auditorium, phenomenal spread of the incipient blaze, failure of the asbestos fire curtain to fall in place when lowered, followed in rapid progress, with the holocaust as the climax. But to return to the narrative of what happened immediately after the first alarm, as gathered by the collaborators of this work. There was a wild, futile dash. Futile because few of the terrified participants succeeded in reaching the outer air. Persons in the rear of the theater building knew full well that a holocaust was in progress. Their fire escapes and stage doors thronged with refugees half-clad and hysterical chorus girls flocking into the alley and crackling flames leaping higher and higher from the flimsy stage and bursting from windows told only too plainly what was in progress within. At the front, half a block distant in Randolph Street, ominous silence remained. A mere handful of people burst out. Those who had occupied rear seats and pushed by the ushers who sought to restrain them and quiet their fears Loiterers about the ornate lobby scarcely sniffed a suggestion of impending disaster before the fire apparatus began to arrive with clanging bells. Those ushers who held back the straining anxious spectators who sought escape at the first mild suggestion of danger, for what widespread woe are they responsible? Mere boys of tender years and meager experience what knew they of the awful possibilities beyond the spell of excitement upon the stage? Only two weeks before, there had been an incipient blaze there that had been extinguished without the knowledge of the audience. Like all the rest of the world that now stands in shuddering wonderment, 
these boys scoffed at the thought of real danger in the massive pile of steel stone and terracotta with its brave and shimmering veneer of glistening marble stained glass of many hues rich tapestries and drapings and cold aristocratic tints of red and old gold and so with uplifted hands they turned back those whose sense of caution prompted them to leave at the outset surely disaster could not overtake the regal iroquois in its first flush of pomp pride and superiority it was their sacred duty to see that no unseemly break marred the decorum established for the guidance of audiences at the iroquois and that duty was fully discharged thus it was that the wild hegira did not begin from the front until the arrival of the fire department then pandemonium itself broke loose all restraining influences from the stage had ceased at the appearance of the all-consuming wave of flame sweeping across the auditorium the boy ushers abandoned their posts and fled for their lives leaving the packed audience to do the same unhampered unhampered not quite darkness descending upon the scene doors locked against the frightened multitude fire escapes cut off by tongues of flame and exits and stairways choked with the bodies of those who died fighting to reach safety hampered many at least the six hundred carried out later mangled and roasted their features and limbs twisted and distorted until little semblance to humanity remained after the first wild dash in which a large portion of those on the main floor escaped the blackness of night settled upon the long marble foyer leading from randolph street to the auditorium it settled in a cloud of black fire-laden smoke death in nebulous forms defying firefighter and rescuer alike to enter the great corridor none entered and more pitiful still none came forth while the situation maintained in front a vastly different scene unfolded in the rear the theatre formed a great l extending north from randolph street to an alley and in the rear west to dearborn street this last projection the toe of the l was occupied by the stage theoretically the finest in america if not in the world thus the auditorium and stage occupied the extreme northern part of the structure paralleling an alley extending on a line with randolph street from state street to dearborn street this alley wall was pierced by many windows and emergency exits and was studded with fire escapes built in the form of iron galleries and stairways hugging close to the wall leading to the alley to these exits and the long grim galleries of fire escapes the herded fire-hunted audience surged those who reached doors that responded to their efforts found themselves pushed along the galleries by the resistless crush behind as was the case in front halfway to safety another stream of humanity was encountered pouring out at right angles from another portion of the house coming together with the impact of opposing armies the two hosts of refugees gave unwilling and terrible answer to the time-worn problem as to the outcome of an irresistible force encountering an immovable body both in front and rear great mounds of dead spelled annihilation as the answer in front over two hundred corpses piled in a twenty-foot angle of a stairway where two balcony exits merged told the terrible tale 
and rendered both passages useless for egress, the dead being piled up in wall-like formation ten feet high. In the rear, an alley strewn with mangled men, women, and children writhing in agony on the icy pavement, or relieved of their sufferings by death, lent eloquent corroboration to the solution of the problem. It was in the rear that the true horror of the fire was most fully disclosed. There no towering mosaic-studded walls or kindly mantle of smoke shut out the horrid sight. From its opening scene to its silent, ghastly denouement, the successive details of this greatest of modern tragedies was forced upon the view to be stamped upon the memory of the unwilling beholder with an impressiveness that only death will blot out. After the first great impact hurled the overflow of the fire-escape gallery into the alley yawning far below, the crush of humanity swept onward, downward to where safety beckoned. When the advance guard had all but reached the precious goal with only a few feet of iron gallery and one more stairway to traverse, the crowning horror of the day unfolded itself. Right in the path of the advancing horde, a steel window-shutter flew back, impelled by the terrific energy of an immeasurable volume of pent-up superheated air. The clang of the steel shutter swinging back and forth on its hinges against the brick wall sounded the death knell of another host of victims, for in its wake came a huge tongue of lurid flame leaping on high in the ecstasy of release from its stifling furnace. Fiercely in the faces of the refugees beat this agency of death. Before its withering blast the victims fell like prairie grass before an autumn blaze. Those further back waited for no more but precipitated themselves headlong into the alley, rather than face the fiery furnace that loomed up, barring their way to hope. It would be well to draw the curtain upon this awful scene of suffering and death in the gloomy alley, were it not for one circumstance that stands forth a glorious example of the heights that may be attained by the modest hero who moves about unsuspected in his daily life until calamity affords opportunity to show the stuff he is made of. High up the building, occupied by the law, dental, and pharmacy schools of the Northwestern University, directly across the alley from the burning theater, a number of such men were at work. They were horny-handed sons of toil, painters, paper-hangers, and cleaners, repairing minor damage caused by an insignificant fire in the university building a few weeks before. One glance at the seething vortex of death below transformed them into heroes whose deeds would put many a man to shame whose memory is kept alive by stately column or flattering memorial tablet. Trailing heavy planks used by them in the erection of working scaffolds, they rushed to a window in the lecture room of the law school directly opposite the exit and fire escape platform leading from the topmost balcony of the theater. By long, almost superhuman effort and ingenuity, they raised aloft the planks, scarce long enough to span the abyss, and dropped them. The prayers of thousands below and a multitude stifling in the aperture opposite were raised that the planks might fall true. All eyes followed their course as they poised in mid-air, then descended, slow seemed their fall, a veritable period of torture, and awed silence reigned as they dropped. 
Then there arose a glad cry. With a crash, the great planks landed true, the free ends squarely upon the edge of the platform of the useless fire escape, the others resting firmly upon the narrow window ledge where the painters stood, defying flame, smoke, and torrents of burning embers and blazing sparks hurled upon them as from the crater of a volcano. Death Alley had been bridged. Across the narrow span came a volume of bedraggled humanity as though shot from a gun, a mad screaming stream pushed on by those behind, simply whirled across the frail support direct from the very jaws of death the blistering gates of hell. Only for a moment, a brief second it seemed, the wild procession moved, yet in that limited period scores, perhaps hundreds, poured from the seething inferno, practically all that escaped from the lofty balcony that was a moment later transformed into the death chamber of helpless hundreds. Then the wave of flame, previously described, swept over the interior of the theatre, greedily searching every nook and corner as though hungry for the last victim within reach. The last refugees to cross the narrow span the dizzy line sharply drawn between life and death in its most terrifying aspect, staggered over with their clothing in flames, gasping, fainting with pain and terror. The workmen, students, and policemen who had rushed to their assistance dashed across into the heat and smoke and dragged forth many more who had reached the platform only to fall before the deadly blast. Then the rescuers were beaten back, and the fire-fiend was left to claim its own. And claim them it did, searching them out with ruminating tongues of flame, over every inch of paint and decoration, every tapestry, curtain, and seat-top. It licked its way with insinuating eagerness. It pursued its victims beyond the confines of the theatre walls, grasping in its deadly embrace those who lay across windows or prostrate on galleries and platforms. Thousands gazed on in helpless horror, watching the flames bestow a fatal caress upon many who had crept far, far from the blaze and almost into a zone of safety. With a gliding, caressing movement that made beholders' blood run cold, it crept upon such victims, hovered a moment, and glided on with sinuous motion and what appeared a suggestion of intelligence in searching out those who fled before it. A shriek, a spasmodic movement, and the victims lay still, their earthly troubles over forever. A few minutes later, possibly not more than half an hour after the discovery of the fire, when the firemen had beaten back the flames to the raging stage, another procession moved across that same plank again. It moved in silence, for it was a procession of death. The great tragedy began and ended in fifteen minutes. Its echoes may roll down as many centuries, compelling the proper safeguarding of all places of amusement, in America at least. If so, the Iroquois victims did not give up their life in vain. End of Chicago's Awful Theater Horror Chapter 1 The Story of the Fire Read by Eberly Thomas
Chicago's Awful Theater Fire By the Rescues and Survivors Chapter One The Story of the Fire This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The 